Good afternoon, and welcome to the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Neil Bartlett. We'll be discussing, among other things, his book, Who Was That Man? A Present for Mr. Oscar Wilde. Welcome. Hello. It's great to have you here. Now, in all the different bits of literature about you, you've been described and celebrated variously as a director, an actor, a playwright, a novelist, an historian, an essayist, a translator, an activist. And that's just what I could find. And I'm wondering right. how you characterize or describe yourself if push comes to shove. Um, I, I don't. I leave that up to other people entirely. Um, I, I've always done many things and... I, so far, I'm still getting away with it. I mean, people tend to assume they're the person that they know. So if people have read my novels, they think I'm a novelist. If people come to the theatre and see my shows, they think I'm a theatre director. And sometimes people get very confused. I have had occasions when people come up to me and say, did you know there was a Neil Bartlett who wrote novels? And I say, <laughs> yes, I did. That's why you think I look this tired. So, I, But I don't describe myself. Um, uh, on my passport, it says I'm a professional artist, and that's what I am. Well, and I think that's a lovely answer. But let's talk about identity and how you're constructing it. Let's dive into this book. Okay. Um, uh, who is that man? A present for Mr. Oscar Wilde. Um, it's a, in some ways a portrait of Wilde, but a portrait of Wilde in service of an exploration of the self and this sort of identity, not definition, mind you, but, but identity construction or, or understanding. I wonder if you'll read from the very beginning of that book as a way to sort of enter in and we'll, um, we'll talk a little bit about identity and non-definition. Okay, here we go. So this is the very beginning of the book. I wrote this book in London in 1985 and 1986, and I guess that's what it's about. Now, I think you're right when you say that I have to tell my story from the very beginning, but I have to stop you there and say, I'm sorry, this isn't going to be a simple confession. I mean, it's not really even strictly my story at all. Coming to London, and that isn't something, by the way, you do just by stepping off the train. It takes years. Believe me, it's taken me years. Coming to London meant moving into a life that already existed. I started to talk to other people for the first time, to go to places that already had a style, a history, if you like. What I've done, I suppose, is to connect my life to other lives, even other buildings, other streets that had an existence prior to mine. Now, this in itself is remarkable because for the longest time imaginable, I experienced my gayness in complete isolation, just like any other gay child in a small town. And now, gradually, I've come to understand that I am connected with other men's lives, men living in London with me, or actually with dead Londoners as well. That's the story, more or less. Thank you. So let's talk about you and the dead Londoners and this sort of pre-existing world that you walked into and yeah. why Wild? Well, um, in a way he found me. Um, I, my college education was at the University of Oxford and I went to Magdalen College, Oxford, which was Wild's college. And 
I think I'd read some of his books before I went to college, and I'd probably seen the old movie of The Importance of Being Earnest on the television. But I found myself living on in the same building where he had lived. So I felt very close to him. And then I discovered, uh, when I was at college, I was involved in uh, performance art. I was starting my performance work at that time. And in Magdalene College, there was a room that you could hire to give performances in, or you could hire it for parties. And it was actually Oscar Wilde's living room. So uh, there I was in this man's living room, this man who since his death has become a legend, an icon, a mythological figure, but for me he was a neighbour. And uh, I was 18, I was at college, I was a foreigner in that environment, I came from a small town with a conservative culture, I couldn't. I was as foreign in uh, Oxford as I think Wilde was as a Dubliner. Um, I was also like Wilde, trying to get my head round having sex with men for the first time in my life, and also falling in love with men for the first time in my life. I was living away from home for the first time, just like he was. So there was a convergence between my life and his life. And then when I moved to London, which is what I did when I left college. I found myself, like every other gay kid who moves to the big city, thinking, what have I done? Who am I? Where am I? Where's the guidebook? Where's the map? Where's the, where's the help? Who is going to tell me how to find my way around that city? And the collected works of Oscar Wilde became my guidebook, if you like, because... Wilde is someone, because of his extraordinary double life, because of his gayness, he had to excavate the underworld of London and hidden, if you like, under the surface of his work, the, the famous comedies, the jokes, the extraordinary language, is another Oscar Wilde who was the man who lived in back streets and brothels and in the byways of alleyways. So uh, he became my guidebook. That's how I discovered him. Great. Well, with guidebook in hand, you discovered London and discovered how to be in London. In the yeah. And then all of this went through thought, etc., and you sat down to write later. Right. How did you... No, I, I sat down at the time. One of the important things about this book is it was written over a long period of time. It wasn't... And I think this is true of most writers. People think writers think have an idea, get it all worked out in their head, and then go, right, now I'm ready to sit down and pick up my pen. Uh, this is not how it happens, or certainly not to me. As I was exploring the city, exploring myself, exploring the culture around me, I kept a running scrapbook. And in fact, I kept it in the form... My scrapbook was the walls of my room. I didn't really have any furniture in the early 80s because I was living on welfare in a housing project. And the the walls of my bedroom were covered in notes, photographs, quotations, photocopies from Bits of Wild. It was the, like this scrapbook. And a friend of mine said, you should do something with this. And I I persuaded someone to commission me to turn this pile of paper littering my bedroom into a book. So what I'm saying is the the working on the life and the working on the book were 
two projects that ran parallel to each other and were intertwined. And all the way through the writing of the book, you hear the man who's writing the book saying, I don't, I'm not quite sure what I think about this. Maybe I'll know tomorrow. Or this incredible thing. I met this guy last night and he said to me, and now I understand maybe something that I didn't say, didn't know yesterday. So it, it was a very fluid process. Well, and that shows in the form of the book and this consciousness, this um, writer who um, unveil, or this the first person narrative narrator yeah. in the book unveils sort of the process of discovery and the way in which you structured the book is sort of like a scrapbook. Will you talk about that because it's not a conventional structure for um, not all not, let's say non not all nonfiction books are written with this sort of structure. No, well, I had one uh, priceless asset on my side that no one had ever trained me to write history, so I didn't know what the rules were. So uh, people have said to me since, "Oh, how did you decide to, for instance, put bits of your diary?" Uh, letters I wrote to my lover at that time um, next door to bits of 19th century pornography extracts from police reports bits from Oscar Wilde and the drawings answer, and photographs yes drawings photographs collages things that I found in art history books of the period um, the answer is well I did it because nobody told me that that wasn't the right way to do things. I mean I, I understand now if you want to be a historian you have to go to university and be trained and da, 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 da. that wasn't what was happening. I was going I felt this thing that is happening in my life which I'm recording in my journal is in some ways very like and in some ways very unlike what was happening to Oscar Wilde that he wrote about in De Profundis, the great letter that he wrote to his lover when he was locked up in Reading Jail at the end of his life. So I'm going to put those two texts side by side on the page. And this is before word process was were invented, or certainly before I could afford one. So the way I wrote the book was literally a scrapbook, typing things out, on sheets of paper, cutting them up and then getting the sellotape and the blue tack and sticking things up on the wall and putting one piece of paper next to the other. So yes, it's a mixture really of every kind of writing that you can have. Um, I was going to say jumbled together, but that's not true. It wasn't jumbled, it took years. <laughs> It has the appearance, perhaps, of very carefully studied jumble, right. <laughs> which is of a pleasing effect. Um, you say a little bit later in the book, not much further, actually, from the place you just read from, I subject the story of my own life as a gay man to constant scrutiny. We all do. We have to because we're making it up as we go along. Hmm. You mentioned that the the collected works of Oscar Wilde served as a guidebook for you. Do you yeah. see this exploration and the result of it not only as a history but as a guidebook um, for others? Uh, it may be after the invent. That certainly wasn't my intention. There's no prescriptive intention, really. Um, what I mean by that, the book doesn't contain any answers it it doesn't tell people what to think about that um there are an extraordinary number of questions in the book i mean i sometimes read it uh, and think every fourth sentence seems to have a question mark at the end it's all the time saying to the reader 
what do you think? What do you feel? What are you going to do about this? Um, have you read this? Why haven't you read this? Have you thought about this? Why haven't you thought about this? You need to think about this. So it, it exhorts, it encourages, it infuriates, it provokes, it questions, it flirts with, but it doesn't say, okay, now I'm going to tell you what to think. Um, of course it will become a guidebook because there are still many young gay people who need guidebooks and they're going to grab on anything they can find and they're going to turn it into a guidebook whether it wants to be or not. And of course, uh, I, I am ex flattered and excited if anyone finds my work of any use, but I wasn't sitting down to write uh, a manual. And neither was I didn't, Oscar Wilde. <laughs> no, because I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, that, and that's the great thing about Wilde. He's one of the great writer of questions. There was I was teaching class for David Holbrin, who's the man who brought me here to Michigan. I was teaching with David yesterday, and we were discussing one of Wilde's famous epigrams, and one student in the class was saying, isn't this fantastic? Isn't this a great truth? Uh, it's the one where Wilde says one should either be a work of art or wear a work of art. And the class was getting very excited about Oscar having said this. And we were saying, yes, yes, that's true. It's true. And then another student said very quietly, yes, but it's also complete horseshit. And we said, yes, that is also true. It is simultaneously both of those things. You can completely agree with it and completely disagree with it. It provokes. And that's why Wilde's characteristic form of writing is the epigram, the thing which when you first hear it, you think, oh, how marvellous, that's marvellous. And then you go, actually, it sounds marvellous, but I think it's completely meaningless. And then it's back to square one. You have to decide how you're going to construct and employ the meaning of that sentence. That's why he's a great and revolutionary writer and also a very funny one. <laughs> well, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David and my guest today is artist Neil Bartlett. tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. Welcome back. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Neil Bartlett. We are speaking about, among other things, his book, Who Was That Man? A Present for Mr. Oscar Wilde. Well, shall we read a little more from the book? Sure. 
Okay, this is a sequence from later in the book where I'm talking about some of the the codes, the languages, the sign systems that gay men have devised to talk to each other without the rest of the city around them being able to eavesdrop on their conversations. And I say to the reader, at what point in your history, or let me put it this way, at what point in the course of your day do you stop modestly trying to look attractive to other men and start dressing in a very specifically gay style so as to score, to belong to the crowd? When do you stop hunting for clues and start to talk in code, code in the sense of a system of signs that no one but us is qualified to understand? Now, these codes are not an alternative to, but exist within the imagery of our ordinary, our daily lives, just as our ghetto is hidden within, but coexistent with the rest of London. Some of our gay codes are as peculiar and as decorative as the green carnation itself. Now, I should pause here and say what I don't say in the book, but earlier in the chapter I do. The green carnation was famously a code sign that gay men in the 1890s in London had developed. Most upper-class men wearing evening dress at that time, you wore a buttonhole. Uh, Lily of the Valley was very popular, roses, carnations, violets. And Oscar Wilde had heard that in Paris, queens wore a green carnation. It, it was a way of saying, hello, I'm gay too, across a crowded room. And so he uh, found a florist who had, in London who had got the secret of how to dye there's no natural green carnation you have to dye them green with green green ink as you can tell it yes I have done it myself so that's why (laughs) green carnation here okay carrying on with reading some of our codes are as peculiar and as decorative as the green carnation itself for instance the notorious and I must say invaluable coding of handkerchiefs and keys worn in the back pocket in which one single careful detail of your appearance can imply frank and specific need and possibility not all codes are that outlandish Quite ordinary clothes can carry no particular impact on the street, but they become, at the moment you walk into a pub, club or bar, signs to indicate your status or taste to a very particular audience, in other words, men who are wearing the same kind of clothes as you are. Some are not worn as badges, final touches or put on as temporary uniforms, but are displayed in the body itself. Consider, for instance, the wealth of meaning implied in the transition from a limp wrist to the stern musculature of a well-worked-out forearm. The secret signs of urban life are all unstable, all subject to fashion. The green carnation, for instance, is now completely meaningless. No one now, alas, flashes the details of their desire across a crowded bar in the complex 18th century language of fans. Presumably we will eventually forget that 
it once mattered whether you wore a blue or a black handkerchief in the pubs of London and in your left or your right pocket. But if the signs themselves are transient, the excitement and importance of collaborating in their secrecy is not. It remains a step in the formation of our self-identity. When a statement of identity becomes as definable as this, even when signalled in a language as fragile, temporary and exotic as that of flowers or as erotic of that of fetishized clothing, we sense that it is made on our terms, not on those of the culture around us. Thank you. Again, that's a bit from the book, Who Was That Man? A Present for Mr. Oscar Wilde. Can I just... Does that bit about the handkerchiefs make any sense to you? Do you know what I'm talking about there? That the whole thing about gay men wearing colour-coded hankies in their back pockets. Do you do that here? Well, as a woman, I don't, and I don't know. Oh. We'll have to ask. <laughs> okay, if only so tell me. any of my students are listening, this is your homework for tonight. Do you know what it means if I wear a black handkerchief in my right pocket and I'm standing at the bar? Do you know what that means? I can't actually explain that to you in graphic detail over live radio at drive time, uh, but I just wondered if I'd be interested to know if anyone's listening and meets me around town tomorrow. Tell me if that uh, language is current in Michigan or not. And that's a black hanky in the back pocket at the bar. Yes, and I want to specify if anyone's listening and does know what I mean, it's in the right pocket, okay? All Thank right. You. <laughs> That's uh, the, 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 the contest. Yep. <laughs> Find Neil Bartlett and respond. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about, um, in the time of, of Oscar Wilde, yeah. um, homosexuality was illegal. Yes, um, he was and in my time too, until very late in my life, I spent the first 17 years of my life being illegal. So we're not talking about ancient just history. ancient history, <laughs> no. we're talking about now. And there are still laws on the books here in the U.S. W- yeah. that are anti-sodomy, blue laws that are anti-sodomy laws. So, um, so there are issues with legality. However, in the 1980s, identity politics and legal, um, the legal climate was much more conducive to publicly exploring gayness. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about these symbols and clues and um, developing your own identity and working with the context of Wild in your own context, uh, given the climate of the 80s. And a lot of our listeners um, were perhaps not quite born in the 80s, so if you'll sort of fill out what was happening in the early 80s into the the late 80s. Right. Well, one of the points of contact between Wild's time and my time is the early 80s were a bad time. Uh, We had just elected the government headed by Margaret Thatcher in Britain, and that was a viciously conservative with a capital C and militantly homophobic administration. Uh, She famously talked about something called the enemy within um, and she would every two years of her premiership identify a new source of threat to the great values of British society and one year it would be uh, the striking minors, another year it would be rioting black people and for a large part of the period when I was writing this book it was gay people and they were dirty, they were dangerous, they were diseased, they were out to get our children. And it's very difficult to describe to people who weren't there at 
the time the atmosphere of danger and violence against gay people, both literal violence as in I don't know anyone who wasn't beaten up in the 1980s on the streets of London and violence in the sense of having to wake up in the morning, go down to the corner store and there were the headlines screaming about AIDS and it was a terrifying time. And so the atmosphere that Wilde lived in of real threat, real danger, the real need to conceal who you were a lot of the time, that was something I was in an odd way very close to, even though this man had been dead for nearly 80 years when I wrote the book. And if you live in a city that hates you and seeks to hurt you, you have to find a way of dealing that with that. And in particular, you have to find each other. You have to find a way of recognizing each other when you're out on the street. Um, and therefore, it was incredibly important. Very simple things like the kind of shirt that a gay man chose to wear. Even the simple, I mean, I can remember once getting on the bus and having to sit upstairs, and I didn't feel safe uh, that morning. Uh, there were very bad headlines in the paper that morning, and I didn't feel safe on the bus, just as a gay person, because I was dressed as a gay person. I, w I had my desert boots, I had my 501s, I had my moustache, I had my bomber jacket, my check shirt. I looked gay. I'm getting on the bus, going upstairs, which means there's no way out, you can't run if there's trouble. And I thought, I just have a bad feeling that someone's going to be reading their paper which says, you know, AIDS in primary schools or whatever, and they're going to pick on me. And I sat down, and the guy next to me was wearing the same outfit. <laughs> and that was a great moment. And that's what, you know, this rather, sometimes in my book, high-flown language about identity politics, uh, secret subcultural codes, that's what it means, and that's what it's about. Uh, the incredible power of sharing a language with somebody um, and of course you together you begin to construct an identity I mean for instance through that way of wearing clothes the gay men of our generation we shed the old stereotype of the sissy uh, the pervert and we became carefree good-looking, handsome, masculine. You know, okay, a new stereotype, but it was one that we chose and one that we constructed for ourselves. In the same way, for Wilde and his circle, um, homosexuality was meant to be bestial, depraved, sodomitical was the word that was used. And he and his followers went out at night wearing impeccable evening dress, white dogskin gloves and green carnations and they constructed for themselves this image that the gay man was brilliant, sophisticated and lived in a different world to the men who surrounded him. Now that was a dangerous position to occupy but how fabulous. How fantastic. On the opening night of The Importance of Being Earnest, Oscar Wilde's most famous play, it was one of the most triumphantly successful 
opening nights of any West End play of the century. Wilde did two incredible things, three incredible things. He had the play premiered on Valentine's Day, the great festival of romantic, heterosexual love and marriage. He then he took two guests with him to the opening night, his wife and his lover, and he sat between them, and he and his lover wore green carnations to that premiere. How fabulous. Hats off. Indeed. I wonder if, I mean, I, I'm a little speechless. <laughs> Pause. Um, I wonder if you can speak then to this, this importance of standing up and self-defining and saying, here's the code. You, y- y'all yes. will say this. We are going to say this. Um, it, you are a playwright, um, have been the director of um, the Lyric Theatre in Hammersmith in London, and have done many, many things that involve words. And I wonder if you can talk about the themes, the politics, the aesthetic choices that go through all of your work, because this is a thread. Um, And we'll sort of dive in briefly to that, take a short break, and then come back and talk some more. So if you'll just sort of set us up. I think I often choose to take languages from uh, the margins I, I, I love the writers who use extreme language discarded language, marginal language, it, discarded and marginalised in very different ways so I love Jean Genet who is the great poet of the French criminal the French underworld but I also love Jean Racine the neoclassical playwright of the French 17th century who writes the most rarefied aristocratic language probably ever written in history um, but they're both on the edges, they ref- Fract the world from the periphery, and a lot of my work is about bringing them into the middle, bringing them into the new place. So I, I took Jean Genet's plays and produced them in my theatre in London, which is a mainstream theatre with 500 seats. It's it's a big theatre. It's not mm-hmm. a basement room in a pub and I produced it with British televisions one of British televisions leading alternative comedians in the lead role so lots of people came to see it and they never heard of Jean Genet equally I have been known to recite speeches by Jean Racine uh, standing on the bar of the Vauxhall Tavern which is London's most notorious south of the river gay bar so I'm that's probably a choice that runs through my work, taking the language of the edges and bringing it into the middle and saying to people, listen to this, you hear something new. Wonderful. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Neil Bartlett. We'll be right back after a break. Tell enough 
I mean they just aren't swell enough You're much too much And just too very, very To ever be In Webster's Dictionary And so I'm borrowing a love song from the birds to tell you that you're marvelous, too marvelous for words. We're back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My name's Ashley David. Our guest today is Neil Bartlett. We're talking about your book, Who Was That Man? A Present for Mr. Oscar Wilde. And um, you say a little bit further on from where you were just reading, according to the dictionary, we had no choice of, no voice of our own, rather. Don't you believe it? In, dif- in a different part of the city, our language was spoken, if not recorded. Our history is not a gallery of mute faces. We were using then the words we are using now, the words. And then you go on to say on the next page, When we speak in our own language, we destroy the notion that talking about a gay experience is even worse than doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Powerful statements. And um, as you were saying just before the break, you're interested in taking things that are sort of at the edges and bringing them into a place where um, there's a writer audience for the message. um, Mm. But there is indeed a message uh, throughout your work. And I wonder if you would speak a little bit in this country, there's talk of this um, poetry of witness or work of witness, etc. Um, do you think of your work as political? Do you think of it in those terms, or how how would you speak about the message? Right, the um, capital M message. Yes, capital <laughs> M message. Well, it's a complicated question, and I'll I'll try and untangle it a bit in my answer. I yes, I do. I absolutely think of my work as being political. Um, my work intervenes in the culture. It makes it different. If my work wasn't here, there would be a gap. There would be experiences which were not being articulated, and that mattered. That matters. And on one level, uh, that's why I do it. I want to speak up. I want to speak out. I want to create space culturally for my people. Um, But equally... No, I don't define myself as political because that's a very dangerous game. I don't know how it works in America, but in Britain, to say that one is a political writer or a political artist involves a particular kind of aesthetics. It's the aesthetics of the old Puritan left-wing establishment where you said the purpose of art is to deliver a message. Unfortunately, the message is a bit unpalatable, so we'll spread some aesthetics on the top and then it's a bit like wrapping a rather clunky present in pretty wrapping paper and then we'll try and slip it into people. We'll make them laugh or cry or whatever while they're receiving it so they go oh that's lovely and they'll they'll get the message and they won't really realize what's happening to them but their consciousness will be raised and therefore the revolution will come more quickly i mean i'm parodying that aesthetic but i do believe that is the way that traditionally some more overtly political kinds of work have operated and that's not how i make art that's not what my art is like i mean there's that terrible phrase where people will say sometimes um oh but you're just preaching to the converted 
people sometimes say that about art which reaches out to a, a women's audience or a gay audience or any I mean my art is for everybody but I do I foreground that audience and I always say to people stop right there I don't don't know what kind of church you were brought up in but I don't preach that my work is not about preaching it's about provoking seducing flirting dazzling um, delighting ravishing but it sure isn't about preaching I'm not out to deliver a message I'm opening doors I'm asking questions not providing answers but of course of course the work is political because um, you know, we're having a conversation, it's what, five past five in the afternoon, prime time radio, and we haven't even mentioned the fact that we're talking about a gay writer or that I'm a gay writer, because we don't particularly think that needs justifying. That is the most extraordinary fact. And the only reason we can do this is because artists like me and the, the great men on whose shoulders I am standing have persistently over the last few decades brilliantly, inventively, cleverly, deviously often gradually levered open the, the culture so that now gay culture can take its rightful place as being one of the most brilliant cultures that we have. So in that sense, yes, I am part of a, a profoundly political um, tradition. I'm a very peculiar part of it. I mean, sometimes people would say to me, well, what's political about doing a Racine play? I, For one example, of the, right. what's what's political about that and well i would say well what the reason why that's a political achievement i am an out gay artist uh, i'm a radical gay artist i spent most of the early 80s misbehaving wildly i stuck to my guns eventually i got appointed uh, director, artistic director of a leading London theatre and when I was there as well as producing explicitly gay projects like the works of Jean Genet I also translated Racine that in itself is a political act to say I as a gay artist can do anything I choose and I don't cease to be myself it's still me I'm still there in the foyer as the artistic director of the building. Almost everyone who comes into the building knows me, knows that I'm a self-identified gay artist. But tonight, they're seeing a show which ostensibly isn't from that culture. And th that in itself is a broadening of possibilities. So there's, there's a politics to the diversity of my work. Would you say that affects, I mean, this may be a completely sort of self-evident uh, question, but I, I'm just going to ask it anyway. Would you say that affects your um, aesthetic choices, that, that it's different to be a gay artist running the lyric theater? I mean, the, obviously it's different. Yeah. You're you, and but are you you and a gay artist running the lyric theater? Are you, how does that work? Yeah, it does work. It works. It works wonderfully. Um, the the answer you're supposed to give to that question oh, is always <laughs> is always no. I'm an artist first and a gay artist second. You know, I, I'm a human being first and a gay man second. And I just don't feel that way. I'm so proud to belong to this extraordinary culture that I was born into, and whether I like it or not, that culture 
permeates and enables everything that I do as an artist and that's fine by me and people say oh well don't you feel limited by that label no no did did Nina Simone ever feel limited by being a woman no did she ever feel limited by being a black woman no 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 it's fabulous well and by everything that you've done it's certainly been um you have just a, a huge range of accomplishments that, for which you've been accoladed and um, and even paid on occasion and paid and yeah. lovely wonderful things like that um, which is unusual for many artists <laughs> tell <laughs> me about it I wasn't part. paid for a long time <laughs> I'm I'm wondering if you'll talk a little bit about what's next. Um, we're we're coming to the close of this show, but we have um, a little bit of time to talk about. You're here in Michigan this week. Yeah. Um, you have stepped down from running the theater in order yeah. to do other projects. You'll be reading from fiction tomorrow night in the yeah. Residential College Auditorium. Is that right? At five o'clock. Yep. Okay. Everyone, come on out for the fiction reading. Then Just say that again. Remind me, where is it and what time? Five yeah. o'clock. Five o'clock. At the residential hall. Residential College. Residential College. Auditorium. Okay. See you there. Yes, exactly. Um, well, but tell us about, this is your second novel you'll be reading from tomorrow. Second I'm novel. going to be reading tomorrow. I'm going to read from some of my early performance works. Um stuff from 15 years ago because I just want people to glimpse where I came from so some of my quite uh, punky because uh, I was on the tag end of the punk movement in London the solo performance works which first made me um, notorious in London and I'm then I'm going to jump from that I'm going to read from my new novel, which is my third novel, which I'm writing at the moment. So I'm going to read from the work in progress on the novel, which I'm very frightened about because I haven't read any of it to anyone. Not even my partner has heard any of the novel. So uh, it will be the first time that I've shown any of that work to anyone in public but I figure it's Michigan you know no one knows me so I'm safe <laughs> I can say whatever I want so I'm going to unveil the new novel tomorrow night and then there's more things in the future I'm going to be doing some opera in Britain next year so you're you're going you're li you're still living in London then or actually I live in my partner and I live in Brighton Okay. which is kind of London on sea. It's only 50 minutes from the centre of London on the train. But that was one of the things that I was able to do when I gave up my job, uh, is we live by the seaside. By the sea. Yeah. How nice. We're, we're, well, we're, not, we're landlocked by the ocean standards anyway, but our lakes are sort of like oceans, inland yeah. oceans, inland seas. Um, so you're you're working on writing projects then, or yes. how are you defining the projects that you're working on now? Are you moving in new and different directions? Or well, do you I th I think it is a. I mean, I uh, I'm halfway through writing the novel, so I don't know yet where it is going to take me. But certainly for me, it feels like a new direction. Um, it's a much more interior kind of writing, I think, than my recent work. I think that's because, you know, the last few years of my life were completely about the theatre, which is a very public world. It's noisy, it's busy, it's full on, it starts at nine in the morning, it finishes at midnight. And now I spend my days alone in my room at my desk. And the new novel is about taking an interior journey into somebody's very private life. But then come uh, May 
next year I'm jumping, I'm changing hats again, and I'm producing a Stravinsky opera. So I'll be back in a completely different world once again. Great. And it's been, one one last little parting question. Um, Sure. It's been almost 20 years since you wrote um, the book we've been predominantly discussing today, Who Was That Man? A Present for Mr. Oscar Wilde. Um, where do you see stuff now? Are you? Do we need a new guidebook? Do we? Sure, we need a new guidebook. I think the world is unimaginably different. Gay culture is extraordinarily different uh, to 20 years ago. Uh, someone who is listening to this is probably working on that book right now. I'm very excited about that, and I can't wait to read it. Me either. Um, Well, Neil Bartlett, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for stopping by. Um, Folks, remember that Neil Bartlett will be reading tomorrow night at the Residential College Auditorium at 5 p.m. from some of his early punky stuff, as well as his novel in progress. My name is Ashley David. I would like to thank very much our engineer, Chaz Barrett. Please stay tuned. The sports report is next. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Next week, Patricia Hample. Please join us again.